Chapter 13 of The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Pilgrim's Way from Winchester to Canterbury by Julia Cartwright. Chapter 13 Harbledown to Canterbury. From Harbledown, it is all downhill to Canterbury, and a short mile brings us to the massive round tower of Simon of Sudbury's noble Westgate the only one remaining of the seven fortified gateways which once guarded the ancient city. Many of the pilgrims who have entered Canterbury by this gate, kings and queens of all ages, foreign emperors and princes, armed knights and humble scholars, good Queen Philippa and Edward Plantagenet, Henry of Agincourt, Margaret of Anjou, Chaucer and Erasmus. Many, too, are the long processions which have wound down this hillside, Newly created archbishops followed by a brilliant train of bishops and courtiers on their way to be enthroned in the chair of St. Augustine. Solemn funerals, attended with all the pomp and circumstance, the funeral plumes and sable trappings with which men honour the mighty dead. Through the west gate went forth that gay company of monks and friars, of merchants and citizens crowned with garlands of flowers, and making joyous minstrelsy as they rode out to welcome Archbishop Winchelsea, who, once a poor student in the school at Canterbury, now came to be enthroned in state in the presence of King Edward I and all his court. And this way, too, they bore him with much state and pomp, eighteen years later, from the manor house at Otford, where he died, to sleep in his own cathedral after all the labours and struggles, the storms and changes of his troublous reign. Since these medieval days, Canterbury has seen many changes. The splendours of which Camden and Leland wrote have passed away. The countless number of its churches has been reduced, and their magnificence no longer strikes the eye of the stranger. The lofty walls and their twenty-one watchtowers, which encircled the city in a complete ring, when Chaucer's knight, after paying his devotion at the shrine of St. Thomas, went out to see their strength, and pointed to his son both the peril and the doubt, are all gone, and the conqueror's mighty castle is turned into a coal-pit. But the old city is still full of quaint corners and picturesque buildings, timbered houses with carved corbels and oriel windows, hostelries with overhanging eaves and fantastic signboards of wrought ironwork, hospitals whose charters date from Norman times and whose records give us many a curious peep into the byways of medieval life. As we draw near the martyr's shrine, memories of St Thomas crowd upon us. The hill outside the west gate, now occupied by the clergy orphan school, is still called St Thomas's Hill and was formerly the site of a chapel founded by Becket himself. A little way up the high street we reach a bridge over the Stour, which winds its way through the heart of the city, and a low-pointed doorway on our right leads into St Thomas's Hospital. This ancient spittle of East Bridge was founded, as a 14th-century charter records, by the glorious St Thomas the Martyr to receive poor wayfaring men. Archbishop Hubert Walter increased its endowments in the 12th century, and Stratford repaired the walls in the 14th and drew up statutes for its government. From that time it was especially devoted to the use of poor pilgrims, for whom twelve beds were provided, and whose wants were supplied at the rate of fourpence a day. During those days, when the enthusiasm for St Thomas was at its height, arms and legacies were lavished upon Eastbridge Hospital, and Edward III bequeathed money to support a chaplain whose duty it was to say daily masses for the founders of the hospital. After the days of pilgrimages were over, this hospital was applied to various uses, until Archbishop Whitgift recovered the property and drew up fresh statutes for its management. Ten poor brothers and sisters still enjoy the fruit of St Thomas's benevolence and dwell in the old house built on arches across the bed of the river. The low level of the floor, 
which has sunk far below that of the street, and the vaulted roof and time-worn pillars bear witness to its great antiquity. There can be little doubt that the round arches of the Norman crypt belong to St Thomas's original foundation, while the pointed windows of the chapel and early English arches of the refectory form part of Archbishop Stratford's improvements. In this hall, some portions of frescoes, representing on the one hand the Last Supper, on the other the martyrdom of the saint, the penance of Henry II at his tomb, with the central figure of Christ and glory, have been lately recovered from under the coat of whitewash which had concealed them for more than two centuries. Twice a year, we know, at the summer festival of the translation of St Thomas on the 7th of July, and at the winter festival of the martyrdom on the 29th of December, Canterbury was crowded with pilgrims, and a notice was placed in the high street ordering the due provision of beds and entertainment for strangers. The concourse was still greater on the jubilees of the translation, when indulgences were showered freely on all who visited the shrine, and the festival lasted for a whole fortnight. At the jubilee of the year 1420, just after the victory of Agincourt, no less than a hundred thousand pilgrims are said to have been present. On such occasions, every available corner was occupied. The inns, which were exceedingly numerous, the hospitals, and, above all, the religious houses, were thronged with strangers. The most favourite, the most renowned of all the hostelries, was the Chequers of the Hope, the inn where Chaucer's twenty-nine pilgrims took up their quarters. At Chequers of the Hope that every man doth know. This ancient inn, which Prior Chillenden rebuilt about 1400, stood at the corner of High Street and Mercery Lane, the old Mercaria, which was formerly lined with rows of booths and stalls for the sale of pilgrimage tokens, such as are to be found in the neighbourhood of all famous shrines. Both ampullas, small leaden bottles containing a drop of the martyr's blood which flowed perennially from a well in the precincts, and caput tomai, or brooches bearing the saint's mitred head, were eagerly sought after by all Canterbury pilgrims. So too were the small metal bells, which are said to have given their name to the favourite Kentish flower, the Canterbury Bell. And, we read, that the French King John stopped at the mercery stalls to buy a knife for the Count of Auxerre. The position of the inn, close to the great gate of Christchurch, naturally attracted many visitors, and the spacious cellars with vaulted roofs, which once belonged to the inn, may still be seen, although the inner courtyard and the great chamber upstairs occupied by the pilgrims and known as the dormitory of hundred beds were burnt down forty years ago. But the old street front, with its broad eaves overhanging the narrow lane leading up to the great gateway at the other end, still remains, and renders Mercery Lane the most picturesque and interesting corner of the cathedral city. The religious houses were open to all comers, and while royal visitors were lodged in St Augustine's Abbey, the convents of the mendicant orders were largely frequented by the poorer classes. There was also the house of the White Friars or Augustinians in the eastern part of the town, close to St George's Gate, and the hospital of St John in the populous North Gate, that fair and large house of stone, built and endowed by Lanfranc in the 11th century, besides that of the East Bridge, which has already been mentioned, and many other smaller foundations. But it was in the great priory of Christchurch that by far the largest number of pilgrims found hospitable welcome. A considerable part of the convent buildings was set aside for their reception. The prior himself entertained distinguished strangers and lodged them in the splendid suite of rooms overlooking the convent garden, known as the Omers, or Homers, Les Ormeaux, from a neighbouring grove of elms. This range of buildings, including the banqueting hall, generally known as Meister Omers, was broken up into prebendal houses after the dissolution, and supplied three separate residences for members of the new chapter, which gives us some idea of the size of these lodgings. For ordinary strangers there was the guest hall, near the kitchen, on the west side of the prior's court, which was under the especial charge of a cellarer appointed to provide for the needs of the guests. Prior Chillenden, 
whom Leland describes as the greatest builder of a prior that ever was in Christchurch, repaired and enlarged this stranger's hall early in the 15th century, and added a new chamber for hospitality, which bore the name of Chillenden's guest chamber, and now forms part of the Bishop of Dover's house. Finally, without the convent precincts, close to the court gateway, where the beautiful Norman stairway leads up to the Great Hall, or Aula Nova, was the Armonry. Here, the statutes of Archbishop Winchelsea, he who had known what it was to hunger and thirst in his boyhood, and who remained all through his greatness the friend of the poor, provided that poor pilgrims and beggars should be fed daily with the fragments of bread and meat, which were many and great, left on the monks' tables, and brought here by the wooden pentis or covered passage leading from the kitchen. This armonry became richly endowed by wealthy pilgrims in course of years, and early in the 14th century Prior Henry of Estria built a chapel close by, which was dedicated to St Thomas the Martyr, and much frequented by pilgrims. The armony was turned into a mint yard at the dissolution, and the chapel and priest lodgings attached to it now belonged to the king's school. Another privilege, freely conceded by the prior and monks of this great community to pilgrims of all ranks and nationality who might die at Canterbury, was that of burial within the precincts of Christchurch, close to the Blessed Martyr's Shrine, and under the shadow of the cathedral walls. End of chapter 13